Turn with me to Joel chapter 1 as we continue uh, that chapter, as we continue looking at the book of Joel. Before we go to it, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come again to this book that you written so many years ago, these are your words, Um, you gave them to the prophet Joel for the people then, but they are through you for the people even now, and so we pray that you would help us to submit to them, to want to know them more and more, to understand them, how they apply to our lives today, how they instruct us. Show us our sin, that we might better follow you, and that we might better glorify you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So keep your finger there in Joel, and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want to use Acts 2 as a way to introduce the topic today. So what's going on in Acts 2? The... The disciples, the apostles there in the upper room have received the Holy Spirit and they go out in the community and Peter preaches a sermon. And there are many there who hear this sermon and this is some of the content of his sermon. And so, again, the theme for today is repentance. And so I want you to hear how Peter is preaching to these men and women, how it brings them to repentance and then what their response is. Acts 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David... That he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, Whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, 
what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter has this stirring sermon, preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and then puts it to bear on the people there, saying, You crucified this Jesus that was spoken of of old. And what's their question? What shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Peter's words went straight to their souls. It changed their hearts. They wanted to know how they could fix what was done, what was broken. They were feeling this brokenness that they have for the first time. Peter's answer, repent and be baptized. I think we all know this moment, not necessarily this, the moment that we came to know Jesus, but a moment when we're caught in the wrong. There's no slipping out of it anyway, and you had to somehow deal with that wrongness. And it's all over the news right now, is it not? Famous people having to deal with the shame of past sins being and not being able to weasel out of them. Some of them are still trying to weasel out of them. For the most part, you have these people that are like, yeah, I did that. And it's wrecking their lives at this point. How are they handling it? Well, some of them, again, they're genuinely sorry. Some are just sorry they got caught. Some are not sorry at all and are continuing to deny the truth. But it's about what you'd expect, right? The men and women that heard Peter's sermon were legitimately affected by the sermon. They saw their sins leading to the death of the Savior that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And they were truly sorry, it would seem, from the text. In our text today, we're going to be working through the nation of Israel still dealing with this locust plague that we looked at last week. Whereas last week, looking at the sorrow that we in dealing with God's judgment and how we're supposed to deal with that and what that means, this week we're going to look at this question, what then shall we do? The quick answer is repentance. We'll look at the idea of biblical repentance, how and why we do it, and how it should be a normal part of our lives. We'll consider how prayer is an outflowing of a life of repentance. And so from that, we'll look at two points. Judgment calls for repentance, and then repentance calls for prayer. And so with that, let's look at the text, Joel chapter 1, 13 through 20. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. To the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and, the, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is not the food, or is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are tore down, because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of the the herds of cattle are perplexed, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. 
To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So quickly, before we get into this, the main thrust of the text, we do see there in verse 15 this concept of the day of the Lord. Chapter 2 deals with that more uh, in depth and a little more exclusively. This concept of the day of the Lord is featured prominently in this book and um, as much as any other book of the Bible, really. The idea that there is a day in which the Lord will exact final judgment on his creation. Throughout Scripture, we read about the day of the Lord, and uh, we read about other days that may resemble this day, much like the coming of the the locusts would have been, taking the form of maybe an invading army, some sort of pestilence, the very hand of God coming down on his people, sometimes his people, sometimes the enemies of his people. And so next week, we'll look more fully at this idea of the day of the Lord. I want to just devote the whole message next week to that concept, but I just wanted to go ahead and mention that this week. We're not going to look at that a whole lot from verse 15. We'll be looking at that mostly from chapter 2, but I thought it would be just go ahead and mention that so you all could be studying on your own. And so first, let's look at judgment calling from for repentance. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail. O ministers of the altar, go in and pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Put on sackcloth. You kind of get this image, right, of a, like a burlap bag with a hole in the top and two arms, two armholes. Well, that's probably not so far from the truth. Um, they would have had some sort of sack. Uh, literally, the Hebrew word there is sack, um, and some sort of burlap-esque bag that they would have put on, worn it as a shirt, probably worn it as all of their clothes, actually. been rough and simple, very plain. And what's the idea here? Their complete removal of any vestige of wealth or privilege or possession is the picture of submission, of humility and penance. You see this all throughout Scripture, this idea of sackcloth and ashes or putting on the sackcloth. And so here the priests and ministers are told to put that on. Your your version even may say, gird up with sackcloth, which is not just simply like wearing it for a day. It's, It's putting it on for a time. We see that in the very next phrase, right? Go in past the night in sackcloth. This isn't something that's going to last for a day. You should be prepared to sleep in it. Why should they do this? The giving of sacrifices are gone. The temple worship is gone. The grain offering, the drink offering, the daily offerings that were given to the Lord are no longer able to be given because the locusts ate everything. They're all gone. Why? Again, why did the locusts come? Was it a random act? that now the people of God and God himself must somehow sort out. No, it was the very judgment of the Lord on his people. 
The Lord continue to, continues to qualify this putting on of sackcloth. Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all inhabitants of the land, to the house of your God and cry out to the Lord. Gather the elders up. Gather all the inhabitants of the land. Again, you have this picture of humility with fasting. Fasting is driving out even the most basic of possessions, which is food. Depriving yourself of food rather than worrying about that, focusing all of your attention on the Lord. This idea of mourning and humility. And what, again, what are they to do when they're fasting and they're in their sackcloth? They're to cry out to the Lord. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, the first 10 verses here. I think it gives a great picture of what may be going on here in Joel as well. Except rather than an army, we have just bugs doing this. Judges chapter 6, verse 1 through 10. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian seven years. The hand of the Midian overpowered Israel. Because of the Midian, because of the Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. For whenever Israel planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them, devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel, brought, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I have delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hands of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. Like the locusts, the Midianites wrecked the harvest of the people of God. Why? Look at verse 1. The people of God that was evil in the sight of the Lord. What did they do as a result of this? Verse 6, they cried out to the Lord. What did he do? He came to them. If you've read the book of Judges, this is a constant refrain. You can see that exact story played out several times in that book. He comes to them. In this, in this case, he raised up Gideon to come and save them. But in verse 10, note, 
Don't fear your current situation, is what the Lord is saying. Don't fear the God of the Amorites. Don't fear these people. But you have not obeyed me. For me, when I read this, this, this had a strong effect on me, and I think this should strongly affect all of us. What the Lord is saying to the people of God here in Judges 6 is echoed throughout Scripture. I will always be your God. So why aren't you acting like my people? Why do you not obey? I'm going to continue to come and deliver you from the Midian huts, the very ones that I rose up to take you over because you were acting evil in my sight. I'm going to protect you. Why do you continue to disobey? I think there are a few important ideas here. I love how the Shorter Catechism deals with this. The Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I love that. According to this, why do we repent? Two reasons. Because we have a full understanding of our sin. That's why we should go to repent, because we have a full understanding of our sin. But that's not enough. I could have a full understanding of my sin and withhold repentance if, there was, if, I, we, if we worshiped a God who would not then forgive me. However, the second reason I repent is because we anticipate and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the mercy of God in mercy God will receive our repentance. And then what will be the result? Turning from it, our sin, to him, to obedience. So what's the expectation then for those in the book of Joel? What should we expect? Were this to be a surprise to us? Were we kept from reading the rest of the book or the rest of the New Testament and all of it? We could expect that God would relent, that he would indeed indeed hear the cries of his people, answer their prayers, but they still did not obey the voice of the Lord. If you keep reading in the book of Judges, what happens when Gideon dies? It's like they turn the party lights back on just overnight. So what what has to happen as a result of our repentance then? We have to turn from our ways. We have to turn and follow him. We can repent with full expectation of the Lord's forgiveness. And that's good and we like that part. But we should also repent with full intention of turning from our sin and turning to him. As they wait... There in Joel, the situation gets no better. Joel and in Joel 1 again, in verses 15 through 18, you can look at those. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near as the destruction from the Almighty it comes. And the food is cut off. There's no gladness. The seed shrivels. The beasts groan. It goes on and on. It's a difficult time. 
the situation is not getting any better for the people there in Joel. And in some ways, it may be getting worse as the circumstances continue to kind of compound on themselves. Should they, have, should they wait then until circumstances get better before they repent? Should we wait until the consequences of our sin become more tolerable before we repent of our sin? It sounds ridiculous to say it that way. We should repent even in the midst of our heartache and our difficulty. So what should we do? I guess remember last week I talked about the fact that I believe that this church, not this church in particular, but the church in this country in particular, is under the judgment of the Lord. The signs are all around. The true church groans, very much like the cattle in verse 18. There's no pasture for them. The church groans. There's very few places for them to be. What should we do? Well, one thing we shouldn't do is point fingers that we believe are worse than us. The thing that I'm more guilty of doing more often than not, I think, I think we should repent. We should fast. We should cry out to the Lord. We should check our own ways. Are we living as the Lord says we should? Are we teaching what the way the Lord says that we should? Are we doing church the way the Lord has commanded? Are we making disciples of all nations? Are we being his witnesses to the furthest reaches of the world? Brothers and sisters, let us repent, knowing that the Lord is faithful to forgive, yet with full intention, turning from those sins of apathy and helplessness or feelings of helplessness. Turn to the one who can and will see his church grow and see it flourish. The Lord is good. Let us turn back to him. And the second point is repentance that calls for prayer. Verses 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. To you, O Lord, I call. Even the beasts of the field are panting for the Lord. Note here, we kind of have this little break from thus saith the Lord, and we have a word directly from Joel that doesn't make it less scripture. I'm just saying that here the prophet is speaking to the reader rather than saying what the words of the Lord are for the reader. To you, O Lord, I call, is what Joel says. He's perhaps not simply reporting this. Maybe he's actually living in the midst of it, feeling the depth of depravity associated with everything that's around him. It could be that he's on the outside, yet he's still moved to cry out to the Lord on behalf of those who are suffering. There's no apathy here in Joel. There's a real stirring of his heart as to what's going on around him. The world is crumbling around him. What's his response? Pray to the Lord. Notice also that he isn't taking joy in the judgment of the Lord. The Lord is always right to judge as he pleases. It doesn't please Joel that he's doing this. It's a hard thing for Joel to witness what's going on around him. Even though... The judgment doesn't directly pertain to Joel. We can assume that Joel probably was living as he should, as much as anyone can. 
but he's among a people who are suffering. And there is no joy in suffering. I think there are a few things that we can take away from this for sure. I think first and foremost, for us, it's important to mourn and to be sad. Even when we know the Lord's hand is in something. Our friends, I mean, we've, we've, we've talked a couple last couple of weeks of friends who are suffering, uh, friends who are dealing with issues that are something that I can't even fathom. Call, have a couple of college friends that were mentioned last week. The husband has a brain tumor. It's probably terminal. Are they sad? Absolutely. Are they suffering? Yes. Have they lost all hope? No. Because of Jesus. Do we understand the difference there? We have to make that distinction. To look at a situation and say, well, the Lord meant it for good, and then just to kind of walk on isn't wrong necessarily. Sure, the Lord means everything for good, but isn't that a little bit calloused and unloving to leave it there? We need to learn how to mourn with one another, to be sad. The, Lord, the world is filled with sorrow. We talk about it all the time. This time of year in particular, it seems particularly filled with sorrow, even though it shouldn't be. Isn't this supposed to be like happy times? But no, everyone thinks it's supposed to be happy, and they're not, and it makes them more sad. It's rough. The Lord is at the helm. That doesn't change anything. He is in control, but it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. Showing sorrow and mourning are not a sinful action at all. I'd even say the opposite. Being unable to show those things may show a heart of someone who doesn't quite understand the doctrine of sin or even their own sin. Sin is a horrible thing. And because of it, the world is upside down. It should absolutely 100% cause us sorrow when we see the effects of it in other people's lives. When we see the effects of it in our own lives, it should cause us sorrow. And so that should drive us to the next point. It calls us to prayer. A prayer expecting the Lord to hear and to answer our cries. Repentance, the act of repentance assumes prayer, does it not? We can't turn from our sin and turn to God without making a commitment to Him verbally to do so. And that's what prayer is. Though the relationship between God and His people can never be damaged eternally because of what Jesus did. We can't somehow undo our eternal relationship with God because of the sin in our lives. Sin does damage the relationship on this side of things. Our prayers do work as the healing of that relationship, not on God's end. God never stops loving us. God never stops coming to his people and, and, and helping them. But we need that. We need that reassurance that he's there, that he's good, and that he's doing what, he's, what he pleases, and that's a good thing. We need that. Prayer doesn't somehow make God love us more, but it helps us to understand our relationship with him more and more. Joel says, To you, O Lord, I cry, or I call. And then he goes on, For the fire has devoured. Flame has burned. Everything is gone. 
to you I call. Prayer has a way of setting our minds on things above, giving us a proper perspective as we speak to the only one who can actually manipulate the situations in our lives. That's the Creator Himself. One thing that reformed, or one thing that I often get asked from non-reformed folks asking questions about our beliefs and what, the way we see the scriptures, and they'll say, well, if God already knows what's going to happen and has ordained all things to pass, as you say, then why do you pray? We pray to change us. That's what I tell them. I pray because I need changed, because I'm messed up, because I don't know the God that I'm praying to as well as I should. We pray because we have an audience with the Creator that was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray to the Lord of the universe, the holiest of holies, the almighty God. He allows us to speak to him. He listens to us. And not only that, he cares. That's why we pray. Why would we not? If we have that sort of access, do my prayers somehow sway God to act in a different way than he would have acted Does it change the eternal decree? No. Do my prayers work? Yes. Did God answer the prayers of Israel when they kept being overtaken by, overtaken by, fill in the blank, by every country in that area, including some non-countries, just some bugs? Yes. And the faith of the people were strengthened. Did God answer the prayers of Joel in this text? I'll spoil the surprise. Yes, he did. And I think it helps us to understand when we pray, well, what does God want? He wants to see his name glorified. He wants to see his people come to profess belief in the Son that they might know him. Remember, he has sheep that are not yet of this pasture. What does he want more than anything? That they would hear his voice and that they would come. He wants to see people of all nations baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wants to see his church thrive, his kingdom spread to the uttermost parts of the world. He wants these things. Why aren't we praying for them? What did Joel know? He knew that the Lord had a people for himself, that he would keep those people safe. That one day he would deliver them once and for all. So what did he pray for? Deliverance. If we know the gospel to be true, brothers and sisters, if we believe in its power, why don't we pray for it more and more? And it helps us to think, what are we praying for as a church? And I think it's good that we pray that God would heal the sick and that he would take care of us in our time of need. That's that's fantastic. But what else do we want to see happen? What else do we want to see happen in this town, in this community, at this college? What do we want to see? We need to pray for those things. God wants to see the redemption of his people. He wants to see this earth made new. He wants to use his church to do it. He wants these things. Let's pray for them. I think this is a challenge for us. Ask yourself, what are we praying for? What are you praying for as an individual? What are we praying for 
as a church. Let us go to the Lord in repentance for our part in seeing the church not be what it could be. Let us go to him in prayer, ask for forgiveness, which he will bring. And we are thankful for that because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And then let us pray that he would heal the church. Starting right here. That he would bring truth back to the pulpits. That he would bring harmony back in the homes. That he would bring the gospel back to the lips of his people. Let us pray for people by name. That we want to see change for the gospel. Let us pray that the Lord would use us, each one of us, to do that. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are sorry that our prayers reflect sometimes a desire to see the status quo maintained. These aren't wrong things to pray. You've told us to pray over our sick, and you've told us to pray that we would have well-being and that we would be that we would prosper that our children would grow, and these things are good and healthy and right things. But Lord, help us to pray that we would see your kingdom come. Show us what that means. We recognize that we are deficient in our understanding of what it means to see your kingdom come here. And so, Lord, help us. Show us. Give us a glimpse that we might long for that. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus who makes that possible, even though... We are weak. He is strong. He is making all things new. And he's using us to do that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be good servants to that end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.